0: Triangles were falling at the window as the doctor cursed. He was a cartoon long forsaken by the public eye. The nurse adjusted her garters as I breathed my first. The doctor grabbed my throat and yelled, God's consolation prize. I belong to the blank generation and I can take it or leave it each time. I belong to the blank generation, but I can take it or leave it each time. So sang Richard Hell and the Voidoids in the 1977 song Blank Generation from the album of the same name. And that title Blank Generation became associated with musicians, writers, poets of New York in the 1970s. And that is the subject of today's episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates and my Guest today is returning to the bureau to talk about his youth, misspent and well spent in New York in the 1970s and the countercultural scene of that time. He is Gary Lackman, now best known to in this country as being our foremost writer on the esoteric and the mystic with 24 books and counting under his belt. He came in last time to talk about the archaeologist the mystical archaeologist, T.C. Lethbridge. And he's back to talk about Blondie, Bowery, the Blank Generation, and all that stuff. Welcome back, Gary.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Stephen. Thank you. Well, last
0: time we saw each other, wasn't that long ago, we were in a cemetery and doing an event about, Alice oh, the Crowley, right?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 an apt place. I think that was my second uh, live talk since COVID. So, um, and the first one, I gave that talk about literary tour of hell, but both... L- live talks after covid took place in the cemetery so i thought that was rather odd
0: yeah it was rather good actually so yeah we were in brompton cemetery for alice the crowley the great beast and then um Kensal green for your history of hell which was terrific and also of course watching a bit of opera
1: um, yeah absolutely a fantastic setting i mean it was remarkable
0: yeah a well, long way from um New York in CPGBs, CPGBs, but we're going to come back to that. So um, as I said to Gary before, normally I like my guests to give their own bios so that I don't butcher them. But in Gary's case, um, we'll probably be here far longer than we've got time for in this program. So I'm going to start, I'm going to give his bio, but I'm going to give it backwards. So he's in West Hampstead. I'm sitting here in Findhorn, north of Scotland. And the thing is, Gary is just about to publish, I think, or next year is going to publish his 25th book. He's published 24 already over the last 25 years. That's kind of one book a year. Uh, now, before that, I believe, and that's when he's been living in London, uh, before that, he went on a kind of, I suppose, an odyssey of sorts, edu- re-educating himself, travelling the world world, steeping himself in, uh, in esotericism, met his sort of spiritual mentor, possibly, Colin Wilson, literary spiritual mentor. Now, before that, he was living in Los Angeles uh, with his band, The No, um, a new wave band, popular on b- pop, punk band, popular on both sides of the state. Before that, he was in New York in a band called Blondie might have heard of them. Uh, And living in part of the blank generation, of course, he appears in uh, the documentary, The Blank Generation, looking pretty skinny and hot, I think. Uh, In fact, I've got to say, of all all Blondie at that time, he's the one who looks the coolest. I think Chris Stein's got long hair in it. Uh, so uh, we uh, and before that, of course, he was a youngster. He was living, as was we just talking a minute ago, in New Jersey, the Garden State, where he could see the towers of Manhattan uh, across the Hudson River. And as a kid, he loved uh, all those wonderful uh, superhero, supervillain stories, which maybe you. Re- f- Was the start, the genesis of his interest in the other, in other power and all that sort of stuff. How's that, Gary, for a very brief retrospective?
1: Hey, you got me hooked. You should go on. Keep keep going.
0: Well, I can't go because I don't know anymore. Before that, but uh, but listen, uh, you know, we we, we want, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about your experiences in New York in the seventies, New York, the culture in the seventies, and the people you knew, the places you played, and all that wonderful stuff. But you know, you were saying then, you, you know, you could see uh, uh, Manhattan, uh, the towers of Manhattan, across the river from the distance. And you know, when did you start to go there? When did you start to travel to? You know that place that we fondly think of as New York, the Lower East Side.
1: Well, I mean, I I first started, you know, uh, cutting school, ditching school. And, um, you know, there's a bus you could get on and it would take you to uh, Port Authority, which is the centre of town. Um, And, uh, yeah, we used to do that as as kids and go to Macy's and just run around Macy's for a while.
0: Macy's is a a department store, right?
1: (laughs) Department store, I don't know, think... John Lewis or Debenham's, or something like that. And uh, yeah, and then you know, I got we got caught once, and so um had to ditch that for a while. But, I mean, I actually had a teacher um my last year in high school who's pointed out to us. He said, "Do you know that the center of human consciousness is a mirror?" bus ride away and most of the people there said uh, and I said yeah well yeah okay and so I just started going and hanging out and I mean just to go to New York was something you know just radical in itself it was mm-hmm. um my parents didn't want to ever go there everyone thought it's someplace you'd get mugged or um, you know whatever and uh, but of course you know you go on the wild side you go to where where the mm-hmm. danger is and um, yeah started going there and then um, Eventually started living there in uh, around
0: 1974. Yeah, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I mean, I'm in a town or two, sort of small town, England, and of course there is there is nothing like the excitement, the romantic excitement of the big city, isn't it? If you're from somewhere quite quiet and um, that danger and stuff. But you know, when I think about New York at that time you know, long time before I went there. I suppose it was like, you know, Starsky and Hutch, taxi driver, burnt out cars, you know, people sitting around on stoops. Very cool, super cool, and hot in summer. The day we, I rewatched Joker, you know, the, 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 um, the film, Todd Phillips' film, and, and you know, which is what, I suppose in a how I imagine Gotham and Manhattan at that time, was that, was that what it was like?
1: Well, it was pretty bad. I mean, you had, you know, the Bronx and all that was mm. all bombed out, it looked like a war scene. Um, you know, the equivalent to what you see, you know, on the news here, you know, places where the war zone is. And then uh, the city itself was going down the tubes, you know, was um, losing money. And there's famously, uh, who was it? Which president was it? I think at the time, he said, you know, New York go to hell. I mean, they went, you know, asking for help, you know, because uh, I mean, there was things like garbage strike. And so you had mounds and mounds of rubbish, just out and about. And you had the rats already, but then they're, they're really out. And I, I can remember going to places like in Chinatown where they just were huge, huge mounds of rubbish bin, uh, you know, black, black. Or even I don't even know if they had the black bins, you know, by, you know, back then and all uh, bin bags and all that. So and where I was living, um, I lived the uh, first time in New York on East 10th Street between First Avenue and Avenue A, uh, Avenue ABC. That's what they call Alphabet City. And at that point, even where I was living was was pretty dicey. You really rarely went down into Avenue A and all that. Uh, but nowadays, you go there and it's you know you have to have like a five-figure, you know, um, to like buy a cup of coffee. throw a rock in any direction, and you'll hit a gap or a or a Starbucks or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, when I started going to New York probably in 1999. I went, you know, every, twice a year for a long time. And actually, even even when I was there, right, is that Alphabet City was a bit edgy. was now? I mean, you know, Manhattan is kind of rinsed by wealth, isn't it? And um, you know, even those those streets which once seemed to kind of kind of you know the the front line um, are now. You know populated by aspiration right
1: yeah well it's all completely gentrified and then you Mm. know moved over the river to brooklyn williamsburg Mm. and places like that or different parts and i know for i mean back in the 90s i was back in new york for a while in the late 90s um because actually got back playing with blondie again so that's a whole total strange story but um there was a scene in Uh, Ludlow Street, which is like the other side of Delancey Street. So that's like, that's more the old immigrant uh, New York, uh, the old kind of down Lower East Side, back in the day where the European immigrants or immigrants wound up there. Um, and the other area where I was living in, the East Village, it's a lot of, you know, Ukrainian, Russian, Polish kind of background. And that's, that was like Ginsburg territory and Dillon territory back in the 60s and the Yippies and Abbie Hoffman. And there used to be the old Yippie um, headquarters storefront, um, which was just across from um on bleaker street just across from where cbgb was but i mean that neighborhood back then and cbgb was on the bowery and the bowery really i mean the bowery ages ago it used to be this lovely green bowered area of of new york uh new york or peter stuyvesant owned that back mm. back in the day and that's why it's called the bowery but it then in the 1890 it was it was kind of like um um, a music hall area, uh, right. and it was actually quite nice and all that. But then it, it went downhill, and I was living there. It's literally Skid Row. You know, I mean, you know, we have <laughs> a sto- I tell a story in in, in New York Rocker uh, about actually us finding a you know one of the homeless people dead on out in the street, and he had frozen in the winter and all that kind of thing. And uh, it's just it was like that. Nowadays, you go there, and it's <laughs> utterly unrecognizable. Except, and I'm very happy. To, to have noticed it, except for the place where we lived, on the Bowery, because it still is this <laughs> has you know graffiti all over it, and it's, it's so somehow I don't know if you know <laughs> for what reason that place is untouched, but the rest this is, of the around is, there is just is just incredibly high rise you know apartments yeah. and and hotels and things like that.
0: So the place you live with Kristan and Debbie Harry, that's still kind of uh, some monument to the Blank Generation. But you know my knowledge of New York and culture is very sketchy, so I associate the Beats you know, had their thing going on in New York as well as the West Coast. And then, you know, the, the folky stuff, the West Village and, and Greenwich and all that stuff and Dylan and Joan Baez and things. And then, but I mean, uh, the counterculture, did it, it had it gone West largely in the late 60s? Or, or what was going on in the city?
1: Well, New, New York was um, Warhol and the Velvet Underground. Uh, and it was a darker scene. So while the Beach Boys are, you know, digging on good vibration, you know, um uh, <laughs> fellowed underground writing about taking heroin <laughs> and things like that so it really wasn't you know pop pop music uh, material i mean and that, and and that's in a way you know the proto history of what was punk and, and all that because it was this street conscious you know um darker uh, side and, and not this cheerful. So, I mean, ha- having said that, you know, Dennis Wilson got involved with Charles Manson. So, right, you know, right. For all the good, for all the good vibrations, <laughs> there was a lot of weirder kind of stuff happening out on uh, on 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 the on the West Coast.
0: And you, you, you know, you've written about this—the darkening of the counterculture—and so I suppose in New York, that was kind of ahead of that, wasn't it? Ahead of that curve because the the drugs were changing, the music was changing, you know. And then, of course, people like Warhol—you know—these these disruptors were. Well, in a way, I suppose, you could say, much more street, right? Than you know those kind of palm tree lined vistas of the west coast right
1: yeah well i mean they're more cynical certainly and not Mm. not uh were not taken up in that idealism that uh made it seem briefly you know for a while oh some kind of radical change could be possible and then when that went south uh there's nothing worse than soured romanticism you know there's Mm. nothing worse than a bruised romantic and then it, it, it you know uh went very bad And um, with Altamont and and, and all of that. But I think in New York, they never really, you know, took that that seriously. There was always a bit bit of a cynical kind of cool uh, side to it. And um, I think this is also why later when punk started here you know, with the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren, who kind of comes out of the tail end. McLaren comes out of the tail end of the 60s because he was in- into the Situationists and all that sort of thing. So it's all, I mean, the Sex Pistols were kind of invented. You know, they were like radi- the radical mm-hmm. monkeys in a way, you know, because they were, you know, some some thing that he was creating. And then they they wanted to really play their instruments, which is the same thing that happened with the TV monkeys in the 60s. Right. They, were, <laughs> they were created and they decided, hey, we really, you know, Frankenstein, <laughs> Frankenstein takes over. Uh, but... Th- that was the political side of punk, whereas New York, it didn't have a political side, really. It wasn't about that. It was about life. It was about the street. It was about art and poetry. Right. Um, and, and you have, you know, Patti Smith coming out of that poetry scene and you know rambo is brought in and all that kind of thing so it was a peculiar mix there and of course you know i've said uh warhol uh lou reed and all that they're bowie they're kind of hovering around that scene as as it's, it's as it's kind of growing so i mean i think the thing the difference is in new york you had this place called Maxis, kansas city mm. that um the reed the velvets uh ellis cooper who's on the darker you know uh side of the pop spectrum uh iggy pop and all that they they were uh um you know at work there and it was a very, it was a different um you know the drugs were different you know mm. it, it, it wasn't lsd it was more like heroin and things of that sort
0: you mentioned Paddy Smith there, and of course, and poetry was a big part of it, wasn't it, too? And I guess also like experimental theatre, you know, we were talking about Andre Gregory earlier, you know, that's a kind of, that was a New York thing as well, wasn't it? Sort of, you know, a radical experiments in, in, in drama and stuff, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, where I, you CBGB around the corner from CBGB, uh, it was a place called the Truck and Warehouse Theatre, mm-hmm. off, 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 off carry that on a few more times broadway uh which is all this radical you know transgressive i guess we would call it today uh kind of theater and my girlfriend at the time uh, an actress lisa lisa persky who was uh, also wrote about it and was photographer um and she was she was in a play with divine hmm. um um you know from pink flamingo's fame and you know she was raped twice a night and as i say in the book uh you know all of my friends had seen her naked twice on stage <laughs> already who went to the show. So, I mean, that was like part of it, but there's all, I mean, even Blondie, we, we, we did, in, um, with Jackie Curtis, who was in the, the Warhol, uh, kind of area. We, we did a work play with him, something called vain victory, which I, is some campy, you know, I have, I can't remember what it was about, which is full of campy jokes and all that. And we did the music for it. So that was, and Debbie right. came out, Debbie came out of that, that, that camp, Warhol scene and the stilettos and other bands where it's, you know, part of it is kind of send up, you know, it, 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 uh, the, that that kind of lost its flavor when glam or glitter
0: uh, started to die out. You talk about transgressive and of course, you know, the whole tra- that whole transvestite thing, which is associated with New York, of course, has become a rather unpopular with the transgender community now, you know, it's seen as kind of old school, school isn't it? You know? I, I, it's way beyond me, I have to say, I
1: can't understand how they can take we read to task <laughs> sorry <laughs> I, but i don't know things every, yeah. this is the post everything world now so everything yeah. is topsy-turvy so I, I yeah
0: well but that's that's for another that's for another day the young, young gary crosses the hudson to live uh east village lower east side you were kind of drawn across because it had already started even when you're still living back home right
1: my life of crime as it were uh started around 73 when uh well Burke, who became the drummer from blondie he was a hipster, and we both went to the same high school. And he was always playing in bands. And he was always at the cutting edge of what was coming up. And so he was into Bowie, the Hoople, um, and other things from the glam kind of thing here. And he was playing all that. And um only a few of us were interested. Most, we most, mostly Grateful Dead fans and all that. And They were a complete <laughs> other kind of thing. But we were these oddballs who were into this kind of thing. And then through a series of events, he wound up answering an ad um, in the Village Voice that Chris and Debbie had put in looking for a drummer, because they lost one of their drummers. And he went, and myself and uh, our, a few other friends went to see him play all the time and all this kind of thing. And I mean, I, I, I got into a very weird kind of crowd. And there was uh, this guy who, at the time, he was sort of like the William Burroughs Jr., of Bayo, New Jersey, where I grew up, he was like the most <laughs> radical guy possible. He like would dress as a droop clockwork orange, and all this kind of thing. And he was really weird. So I, I, wound up with him and another couple other kind of, you know, weirdos on the fringe. And um, he he moved over to New York, and and weird. St- I mean, I can't even go into the total weird story about him. He wound up becoming a born again for jesus and he actually lives lest i heard a long time ago when i was researching the book he lives in england Lest i had a flock it turned out that i was living on east End street in in new york between first and a uh i was working as a messenger um and that meant that i was you know from midtown manhattan running around different offices delivering things and all this kind of stuff and i often would keep um the subway tokens that they gave me if it was a place that was far away and I would walk really quickly because <laughs> I made so little money that if I there was a guy in the neighborhood a little shop but if I gave him some subway tokens he would give me like a couple slices of cheese and a couple slices of bread so I was living on that literally and and my I I was I was a poet you know so this is what poets do <laughs> so but in that context um because Blondie kept losing all these members in the band uh they lost their bass player guy named Fred Smith he left Blondie to go play with Tom Berlaine in television uh, because Richard Hell had left television to start his own band. And Clem said, well, you could kind of almost sort of play bass, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> so come to the audition. And I had already been hanging out. They knew me and all this. I was the guy who wore dark glasses at night all the time and stuff like that. And, um, and so I just wound up jamming with them once. And uh, they said, okay, you're in. So, and that's how I started playing with them. I practically like, learned how to play, you know, you know, not quite, but almost, you know, a, a, as we went. Learn as you go. That
0: was the spirit of the time, wasn't it? You know, learn, learn three chords and you're good, right?
1: Absolutely. And mm-hmm. even at the time, it was a very strange time. If you look at rock history, I always think, because you had this rock nostalgia happening already for the 50s, just in the 70s. And it's, it, it's not even quite 20 years. Uh, and people like um, Chuck Berry had made a comeback. Right. And then there was um, a doo band called Sha Na Na that did all right. the old oldies, they had to come back. And even John Lennon in his first solo sure. album had stripped sure. down to practically nothing. It sure. just was him... Ringo and Klaus Vorman, you know, and it's like if you wanted something radical, that was like one of the most radical things. There was sort of precedence for it, but exactly what you're saying is like, you know, uh, it was all Emerson Lake and Palmer or it was all the corporate rock or this, the easy listening eagles and all this kind of right. stuff. It just was after a while it was nauseating. And then just and the whole idea that for me, it happened when I went to see the New York Dolls. Right. I mean, that was a transformative moment. The foundation uh, foundational event was that I went to see the New York Dolls at their famous St. Valentine's Day massacre concert on Valentine's Day at New York at a place called the Academy of Music on 14th Street, which I don't even know if it exists anymore. And they were, you know, they they were all done up uh, you know they were like wow and they played three chords and it was loud <laughs> and it was fast and it just was exciting and I was like mm-hmm. wow what the and like I could do that I could do that you know mm. I don't have to be Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or any mm. of these guys you know
0: the first song which you wrote well certainly this the first song that you wrote for Blondie which was their first single and I was touched by your presence there that's not a three chord song Gary
1: a four maybe five let's have a listen I know what you mean, it's not the sex pistols. Well, we weren't doing though, I wasn't doing that. Everybody around me was angry, like Richard Hell and Alan Suicide and Johnny Thunders. And I thought, I have nothing to be angry about. I'm doing exactly (laughs) what I want to do. I'm 19 years old. I'm playing a rock band, living in New York. I can't believe this. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm the guy, I I was like most likely not to succeed because I I wasn't, all my friends in high school were these great musicians. You know, they were figuring out Eric Clapton licks and Jimi Hendrix licks and everybody else and Carlos Santana and all the great guitarists. And they played in these cover bands and they were great but you know one reason or another they didn't cross over they didn't you know c- cross the threshold the river and I just plunged in Geronimo because I well, I mean I had to it was, it was life I mean I had to leave home it was it was like sink or swim
0: well you know um, the thing about I'm always touched by your presence series is that it's a it's a very beautiful touching lyric it's a piece of poetry and that was that had been your back you were actually a sort of underground poet right
1: nothing ever got published or anything at the time but right. that was like well, i somehow that's what i wanted wanted to do so i remember when i was a kid in school but but I, there was one book that had poetry on one side and then contemporary rock lyrics on the other so it would have yates on one page and <laughs> dylan on the other or Harum, harem a shade of pale on one page and uh, love song of uh, j alfred proofrock on on the other and i looked at them and said yeah, oh yeah so i couldn't play anything but yeah i could write those so i sort of wanted to write lyrics to songs right and i i wrote a lot of stuff and i i jokingly say it was all pretty bad because you know i, I, I cringe when i think about it now but it did get transformed into writing writing the songs and presence there is um well that's where the beginning, as it were, of my interest
0: in what I'm doing now. Absolutely. Okay, so you, through Clem, you met Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, and, and then you ended up living together, right? I had, to,
1: I had to leave the store from where I was living with this, this strange character, uh, because he left to go to Israel to live in a kibbutz, uh, because he was convinced the end of the world was going- and he wanted me to come with him. And I said, oh, sorry, I can't do it. So he kicked me out and my parents wouldn't take me back because uh, I started, I lived there for a while, but I was coming back at four, five in the morning they were saying, look, you know, either quit this band and go back to college or, you know, forget it. So I, I stayed in the band and all that. And I didn't have any, I was what we call couch surfing for a while. I was like going around different places, you know, where to live. Mm-hmm. And finally Debbie and Chris were living in us first in the tiny a uh, flat in L- Little Italy, which right. is just sort of sou- south of uh, Soho and all that. And if you know from all the Mafia, yeah. the Godfather movies. And um, that was a tiny cramped place. And then we got into um, a whole floor of a loft of a building, they called it a loft, on the Bowery and a block away from, from CBGB. And everybody was living, you know, you know, the talking heads were living nearby, you know, uh, the Ramones lived nearby, all the, all these bands were in the same, you'd bump into everybody just walking around. This
0: you, obviously, you're, you're in Blondie, you know, starting to, the, you know, their rise. Uh, and then you've got all those people that you've just mentioned. Um, and did it feel like there was something going on, that you're part of something?
1: Yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, there was this sense, well, I said you, you were, it was, it was something very different. And mm-hmm. it was radical at the time, because for a good while, no, none of the mainstream sort of rock press would pay any attention to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was, there was something called Rock Scene Magazine, uh, that would write about it. And you'd have a picture of the New York Dolls in there or something like that. And then, oh, a, a, a picture of television. Or, and, and then gradually, mm-hmm. And there was something called the Soho Weekly News. It doesn't exist anymore. They were, So it was. Oh, it took a while before any of the you know the media around paid any good attention. The Village Voice ignored it for a long time. I was. Just, I I remember some scathing article about it in Rolling Stone. I might be misremembering, but there was something like that. Uh, but yeah, you all felt because everybody went to see everybody else play too. Oh, so sorry. So at any any particular night, you know, uh, at CBGB whoever might be playing, you'd have all the other bands in the audience most of the
0: time. What year is this?
1: this is for me, for, well, I first started going there to see people play in 74. Mm. And I started playing in
0: 75. And there'd been Club 82 as well before that, right?
1: Club 82, that was the thing before. That, that was, yeah. I was there in 73. That was, Club 82 was an old drag club, uh, transvestite club that um, let rock bands play after a place called the Mercer Arts Center Uh, That was on mercer street literally collapsed i i wasn't there that was the place that was another foundational place that actually lost its foundation because the building apparently (laughs) literally collapsed and so they had to find another place to play so club 82 would let bands play and people like bowie and lou reed were hanging out there and all that and once we learned that myself and my weird friends we used to go there and hang out all the time and try to meet them and all this kind of thing. And that's where I saw, that's where I first saw Debbie Place, She met her band, The Stilettos. And people like Wayne County, you know, mm-hmm. it was a, a rock drag act basically. And The Dolls and lots of, and there were, all, there were all bands like the Harlots of 42nd Street. There were all these kind of, you know, glam sexy bands at the time but nobody knows of now. But then that scene died out. Somehow that died and went radically different because Even before the ripped T-shirts, like uh, television, they just dressed in stuff they got out of charity shops. And it was like kind of down, you know, it was all dressed down. It was nothing exciting. And hell kind of was the one who consciously decided to tear the T-shirt and McLaren picked up on that and took it back here and, you know, created the Sex Pistols with.
0: You know, isn't that interesting? Because actually we often think about it the other way around, don't we? Like the punk and all that stuff, punk fashion. Punk music was invented here and then exported. But in fact, it was probably the other way around. Well,
1: I mean, the thing is it wasn't, we didn't call it anything. It Mm. wasn't called punk. It was New York rock or street rock or New York underground rock. And and the first, it was the first big festival as it were, at CBGB that all, all those bands played in. It was the CBGB Festival of Unsigned Rock Talent or something right, like that. Right, right. So it, yeah, Punk Magazine came up, but when the scene had kind of established itself, but it, it had created a kind of, uh, okay, this is it. And the band's it like the Ramones and the Dictators and right. things of that sort. So.
0: I mean, nobody, because, nobody called it punk in the early days. You know, but I mean, I did, I did a program with Andrew and Susan who ran the Roxy Club in, oh, uh, right, in right. Covent Garden, you know, and um, it's just the same there. It's just that when they that when they were doing the Roxy, you know, in some ways parallel to CBGBs, it was in an all-gay club. You know, the same sort of thing. They managed to kind of semi-squat it, took it over for a while. And they were putting all these bands on, but it wasn't like, hey, this is the punk scene, come and see us here. It was just these bands that were sort of, you know, in, in had a similar ethos, basically. And it, and it all got kind of christened as punk a bit later, really, and identified as a scene. And Susan, I remember Susan saying, you know, well, you know, in actual fact, there's a lot of variety between the bands that were playing there. They had a certain energy, and of course, they were underground, and, you know, it was a new thing. It was in reaction to what went before. But it wasn't like they all sounded like the, sort of the, pest, the pistols or something. You know what I mean? There was a lot of variety, and I guess the same couple of years earlier, same sort of thing there, right? A, a scene was going on, but it hadn't been identified as such.
1: As I said, and all the bands sounded different too. I mean, mm. the thing when you go back and you listen to Television, they mm. they sound they sound they sound like not the Grateful Dead, but they sound like you know they're, they're a guitar band. They're long, extended solos. I mean, there's right. sort of remarkable music. I, I think the first television album is probably the best thing to come out of the whole CBGB scene. But they're not the Ramones, certainly not. And they're not the, what the Talking Heads were, and they're not Blondie, and they're not so. And again, there are all these other bands that didn't get signed or you know right. lost in the shuffle that were uh, uh, very you know clever and interesting and all that too. But yeah, the thing too in, in New York again, it's kind of like. If you want to be successful well this is going to happen in the sense that suddenly it became something to do and be so all these people from what they called the tri-state area so uh from jersey connecticut um and where's the other state oh new york (laughs) (laughs) sort of descend on 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 cbgb and they would never have come down there until it had suddenly been called this thing and all you had to do was throw pour a beer over your head and you join the club. Uh, and it, it, it made for the club being, you know, emptied out twice a night. Tell us about,
0: about home. I mean, so you and Chris and Debbie are living together. That's, you know, that, that's, that's, quite an, that's quite an intimate uh, setting. You know, they're a couple as well. They're not inseparable.
1: They're, they're, I can, we used to call them Tina. You know, um, or John and Yoko, or Yon Yon and Yoko. Uh, when we were really uh, cynical, they decided we, we can't stay in this one flat. I mean, I you know I I I was innocent abroad. I didn't I didn't know anything. I was just you know my parents had thrown me out. I'd been arrested for this. I didn't have any money, and it's like eh, you know. So I I, I remember like you know, sleeping on this couch they had in this little flat and freezing and all that, because I didn't, I didn't dare ask for a blanket, I didn't want to disturb them. But then we got into this bigger place, and uh, it was huge, you know, the whole floor. And um, the fellow who was renting it out, a fellow named Benton, um, was an artist of sort. And he did these wild paintings, but he was also um, very interested in Alistair Crowley. And um, and he had tar- the tarot deck, and he would do these kind of impromptu readings. And Chris and Debbie had a kind of kitschy interest in you know the occult and all that. I, I, no, nothing very serious, but it was it was there. And it was also like debris from cultural debris from the previous generation. So there was a lot of that kind of around uh that sort of stuff so in this loft space where you're living on the bowery and chris was one for picking stuff up out of the street and just bringing it in and it's just was art as soon as soon as got in the house it was art <laughs> it was junk out on the street <laughs> so you'd have all these weird things there but we, we had a nun we had like a statue of a nun and she had a rosary bead but someone had put an upside down cross or something on her <laughs> forehead and we had all these kind of you know voodoo sorts of stuff and pentagrams on the wall. And one of the weirdest things were these Tibetan tankas, mm-hmm. these tankas are these paintings of, you know, the lives of the monks or the lives of the uh, the yogis, uh, the, the, sorry, the buddhas. and there's one where there's um, one of the, the monks is dead, and they've chopped him up, and he's in and he's in a cauldron, they're cooking him up, <laughs> to eat him and all this kind of thing. So this was, you know, the kind of setting. Um, and I mean, they, they lived, they had a room in the back, I basically slept in the practice area um, and, um, and then uh, it, was, it was kind of crazy because, you know, we, we, the electricity was hooked into um, a liquor store that, you know, an off license that was downstairs, but we were sucking their electricity. They didn't know they were paying for it because right. no one was supposed to be living in the building in the first place. I'm sure it was a fire trap and all that. And then the top floor the benton had the middle one the top floor was a um the designer named stephen sprouse who, who um uh was of, of, of some notoriety at the time and um at one point it became a scene it was like we had we had this famous party in I think it was february 1976 um when everybody came and it was like a big kind of you know thing happening there so um yeah, it was a fantastic place. But I mean, Debbie was like a um she was kind of like the 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 troop leader, you know, the uh, the mum like more. Right. You know, uh you know, so I remember she's picked I, pick, I remember her, you know, fixing scrambled eggs in the morning with her <laughs> curlers
0: in her hair and like that, so. <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds tremendous, uh, fun actually. And so you're living together, you're playing together, you're, you're practicing together, you're out, you know, you're developing your sound, right. And then record the first album and uh, you know, and, and came to this, came to, well, you toured in the States, obviously, but you always came to UK and toured, right. And that was, I thought that was your first time in London, I guess, was it, I suppose?
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. 77, right. uh, during the Queen's Jubilee, right. Um, May. And
0: Perfect time to visit England.
1: <laughs> God Save the Queen had just been banned from the radio. And uh, no, it was fantastic. I mean, um, well, I mean, the thing is, it's the magic time when you're mm. getting to be successful. And right. then once you start to be, then the, the suit's come in and the people with money and all that. Yeah, Debbie,
0: obviously, you know, incredibly sort of charismatic and beautiful and stuff. Always going to be the focus of like record companies and management and stuff like that. One thing
1: I was going to say is you, they, they, they certainly were ambitious because Debbie had been around for a long time. She, had, she mm. had been in a band in the late 60s called Wind in the Willows. right? Um, so, and she had been on the scene a good, you know, when was that, you know, so uh, quite some time trying, trying to make it. So in a way it was kind of make or break. I think for her, cause she, you know, right. it, it seemed like that. And so any case, you know, whatever, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, uh, what happens is I, I was a young guy. I was talented. Uh, I wanted to do my own songs. I wanted to play guitar on more tracks and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, um, oddly enough on 4th of July, which is in America's independence day. Um, I received a phone call from the, from the, um, manager telling him my services were no longer, uh, required and and um, you know, so whatever, but it's okay.
0: Listen, well, listen, Gary, I, I've got to get I've got to take this off my list here, right? Because I really want to talk about New York and you and what and, and, and you know, your life there and the counterculture. But your life has evolved in a very different direction, right? And I mean, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the author of 24 books, you are, you know, you are the sort of foremost uh, writer on the esoteric in this country, at least. And um, so you know, you, listen, you're a success, right? Okay, but if in the following years, and I know you went on out your band in LA and stuff, and you were driven by your own creativity, right? But were there any, <laughs> any times you woke in the night, you know, as blondie's 40 million al- album sales, when you thought, fuck, you know?
1: Uh, no, what I thought was that the bass, they, at least in the early days, the, the guy they got to replace me, um, uh, they, uh, Nigel, they, they made him dress like me. Because if you look like the early pictures, he's wearing exactly the same kind of clothes I was wearing. Let me tell you what I did after this, mm-hmm. uh, after playing with them and after my own band, because I mm-hmm. wanted to have my own band. So sure. I, mean, I, I, I thought we would get a deal and we didn't and whatever, you know, there's no guarantees. And then I played with Iggy Pop on two sure. uh, tours. But sure. after that, I, I mean, the next actual career move I made was to think I was going to teach philosophy. But the one thing that I did regret, which is much later, uh well it's two things is that one is like more of my songs didn't get recorded. Mm, but then course. when I got back playing with them again mm-hmm. in in the late 90s, which was a whole total story by itself, mm-hmm. I was supposed to play on that album. A song of mine was supposed to be on it, and blah 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 and through a series of so, so. events that I don't want to go into, that didn't happen. So that to me was, a, you know, that was- a But big, it's quite
0: interesting that Christine, you know, called you up and asked you to rejoin the band. I was just going to ask you about that, because um, do you think that in some way for him, or maybe for him and Debbie, Harry, I don't know, but that there was a sense of either trying to reconnect with their own youth and their own time when you guys were living together in the loft and you know to re- reconnect with that kind of energy and that spirit or maybe even a bit of guilt right about what had actually happened i mean why because he could have called he could have called anybody could he, he could have got he could have any bass player right well
1: that's the thing no he wanted to put the band back together that's what he mm. said and all that but I, he himself was going through a difficult time mm. uh and Uh, I somehow thought that somehow my being around would would help him. And I hadn't been in touch with him in years. But I also thought I wondered if they just wanted to put together the original, you know, Mm -hmm. elements that led to their success in the first place to, you know, eternal recurrence to go through the same thing. I I don't know how many of the people, you know, were left or kicked out of the same band twice Mm -hmm. with the 20 year hiatus (laughs) in between. And ex- under the, more or less exactly the same. I think strange things have happened in my life.
0: Strange things have happened. Well, listen, it, the, the eternal return, right? But I mean, and, and listener, if you get a chance to check out the documentary Blank Generation about CBGBs and all that time, you'll see Gary's in there looking super cool, I have to say. Probably looking, the maybe with the exception of Debbie, looking the coolest in the band. But you know, that whole time, I mean, did you know people like Paddy Smith? Did you know people like Mapplethorpe and, and all those uh, seamsters? <clears throat> I,
1: I didn't know Mapplethorpe, but I, I knew Paddy Smith. I, I, I uh, you know enough to uh receive the usual patty smith kind of treatment um from her so which is what oh she's usually you know fairly abrupt and and all that i mean there's an old one of the stories i tell in new york Rockers is about how clem at one point he was hedging his bets and um patty smith was looking for a drummer and so he went and auditioned uh and i went with him and this is where i was wearing dark glasses all the time and uh she she said which one's the drummer he nodded <laughs> And she said to me, what do you play, sunglasses? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, you know, so, I mean, I knew, I knew her, knew all the Ramones. I mean, when I, mm. sadly, when I walk around here in Camden and uh, mm. see people with the Ramones t-shirts on, mm. and uh, if it's the original band, I mean, I knew all mm. of them, and sadly, they're mm. all dead. They're all dead, right? Uh, yeah, I knew Richard Hell, knew the Thunders. I mean, you know, you 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 know, it wasn't like real chummy we weren't having lunch together all the time but you you you, you, you knew people uh you I said you saw them in the street there was a famous place called the gem spa which was uh basically a newsagents but it also had a you know a soda fountain in it and um that that was a beat kind of hangout in the 50s and a hippie place and all that and then in the 70s you'd bump into you know people in there so you'd go in and they're you know Looking through the magazines to see if there's any mention of them or something like that. <laughs> um,
0: and I suppose there was also the uh, still, you know, the uh, legacy of Warhol. And as you mentioned, you know, John Lennon, I mean, you know, John Lennon made his uh, New York his home, didn't he? And did some amazing work there. I and mean, by this time, I suppose he was living up uptown in the Carlisle, or what is it, the Carlisle, the Dakota, the Dakota? Yeah, Dakota.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I when, when he was shot, I was in LA, but I was getting on a flight. Um, and I was in New York the next day. And I remember going up to, um, Well, it's named Strawberry Fields now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't then part of Central Park across from the Dakota uh, for the memorial. And I have to say, I'd never seen New York as quiet Mm -hmm. um, as that day. And there was no traffic at all. And then one um, that year with, uh, God, uh, Jimmy Destry from Blondie and um, a few other uh, people from on the scene, um, uh, Rob Dupre, who played in a band called The Mumps, but also later played with Iggy. We did a tribute um, to Lennon at a club called Hurrah that my band, The No, used to play in it all the time. And I, I sang Cold Turkey and in Instant Karma.
0: Uh, any recordings of it?
1: No, that's the thing. This is just on the cusp before everybody had the tech <laughs> to bloody record everything. And um, that's the thing. I mean, there's there's live recordings of the uh, no but there aren't any videos of it and i i don't know maybe some you know enterprising individual captured that, but it was it was um yeah I remember that and um I mean that was the thing too with the New York scene. We were I mean all the the punk thing was kind of like you know kill Pink Floyd. You know it was all you kill the previous generation. Whereas in New York uh, with Patti Smith, everyone was doing homages. It was like a return to that. Huh. And that was the whole thing. There was a return to the '60s because it was good songs, and it was you know straightforward rock, and it wasn't you know this again this very complicated um, you know baroque. You know, operatic kind of stuff that you got with Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. So no, I mean, she famously wore like you know the Brian Jones T-shirt and Jimi Hendrix oh, yeah. T-shirt and stuff like that. So it was an homage to that time, not a not a rejection. I
0: was, at a, I was playing at a um, uh, upmarket literary festival a few years back in Norfolk, and. um the the uh, the way they had it is that all the artists and could would sit around a huge table uh, for dinner in the evening and um, David Gilmore was there actually not actually playing himself but because his wife Penny uh, had got a book out uh, and um, I was sat, sat at dinner between I had David Gilmour on one side of me and Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols on the other I I seem to remember didn't you used to wear a t-shirt which said I fucking ate Pink Floyd or something Yeah, but he got uh, kicked out. He got kicked out of the Sex Pistols because so he liked the Beatles. He did. He, you know, as they say, revenge is a, is a dish best Tasted cold. They had a charity auction afterwards uh, uh, in this tent with the artists and um, uh, and Glen Matlock, uh, you know, very he's, he's a very sweet guy, right, and talented as well. He wrote the uh, he wrote the lyrics for a Pretty Vacant on a napkin and, and which they did an auction for, and I think got about five hundred and sixty quid, right. And then David Gilmore drew the first four notes of uh, I think is it Shine On New Crazy Diamond, you know, the ding 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 on a napkin, and it sold for three and a half thousand quid. <laughs> <laughs> And well, speaking of punk, I mean the punk of the new wave scene in in um, the UK. Did that feed in then to 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 the New York scene? You know, was there a sort of feedback loop across the Atlantic?
1: Well, it was well, uh, uh, kind of in the sense that it 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 served to suddenly define or to characterize what was supposed to be happening in New York now, uh, and the kind of poetry art side of it went out the window um so you had and again these are bands from out of town coming in too so you had bands like the dead boys uh from ohio so they came in and they're, they're kind of like i don't know kind of uh stooges hmm. uh kind of take uh but again it was loud you know violent aggressive and that kind of thing and um so yeah the 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 more subtle um stuff that i i always found interesting about that particular period where you did have this meeting between sort of rambo and you know three chord rock right uh right, right. um that that sort of disappeared and uh, again that's how it you know it became defined in new york with punk magazine so not necessarily exactly you know copying uh but you know we had lots of people turning up in new york who never before would with you know <laughs> safety pins in their you know, jackets and ripping their t-shirts and all. And it's like, uh, okay, you know, and and you have places like, um, I don't know if they exist anymore, but there was a a clothes shop, a designer Fiorucci's, uptown and they were the first ones i remember selling you know pre-ripped clothes right 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 So which now is like you walk around
0: everybody's got
1: these <laughs> jeans on that you know different you know their knees or whatever it is <laughs> so various things it's like i'm sorry you know it's just, it's just like yeah but they were doing it back so that would have been about
0: 1980 I think. in terms of counterculture right i mean there were, you know you're talking about the say poetry Pat smith and uh, you know, the a theatre and stuff, there was this kind of continuity then in New York, even even when the gu- things that you guys were doing, which are very different musically than the whole Deadhead stuff, but actually there was a continuity of counterculture where with punk here, New Wave maybe, it was almost like there was a kind of, it was cut off from the previous uh, decade of counterculture by the kind of bog of progressive rock, wasn't it? There's, and the, the, and even though, of course, it turns out that Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, you know, he was a fan of Jip Van de Graaff Generator, he was a fan of Sid, Bar- Sid Barrett and all that stuff, he kept, maybe kept quiet. About at the time, but but it was cut off. It didn't have really at the time that kind of um, so much of that of that kind of uh, theme of cancer culture running through it, right?
1: Well, I mean, again, as far as I know, I mean, I have to say myself, I never was quite taken with, I, I didn't, I never liked the Pistols. Um, I mean, the Clash were interesting to me. I think musically they were more interesting. I liked the jam that was like, you know, I guess the, the the mod or power pop or whatever, you know, everything started to get sliced very finely into what, what it was. Ooh, <laughs> was it that, was it New Wave, was it this or that? <laughs> um, but uh, and it, I tell the story in New York Rocker about Blondie's running with the Damned, and uh, well, they were the first ones to come over, being before the Sex ah, did. Okay, um, and oh, to tell you the truth, I tell you the band that had the most influence on the New York scene from England was Doctor Feelgood, who predated all of this. Pub uh, rock. St- right. Yeah, pub rock, but stripped down, very simple, and they wore these suits they found in the charity shops. If you look, they're, look, they're looking, they're just wearing suits, and what, Clem Burke went to. London for a holiday. His girlfriend was, I think in Oxford at the time. And he brought back a bunch of albums and he brought back some of their stuff. And at this party, I remember I told you we had, we started playing that and they kept playing, you know, over and over again. And so, and Wilco, you know, the pogo, everyone's, I, I started doing, it. I started jumping up and down all the time because suddenly, ooh, Wilco Johnson's like leaping up in the air. So trying to be Nijinsky, you know, uh, and all that. So that,
0: in that term, you know, in that way, Tell us about the Blondie versus the Dam story then, actually.
1: We were in uh, California. This is when we were first in L.A. And we were on a radio program with Rodney Bigenheimer, who I believe is still around. And he was like one of the, you know, the mainstays of the uh, kind of rock scene there. And he had his own radio program and blah, blah, blah. And so we were on it. Uh, this is in Pasadena. And the Damned are on at the same time. <clears throat> and, uh... You know they were being like really punky. <laughs> we're just there, uh, you know. But but they were being really really punky. And uh, at one point, uh, Captain Sensible uh, spat at my girlfriend who was there. And um, as I say in my book, if the others hadn't um, kept me from him, he would have been Captain Senseless uh, for the rest. <laughs> Of the afternoon or whatever it was but it was like what the fu- you know he <laughs> was just doing it you know like to like you know to kick things up and i couldn't you know so you know. nobody in new york didn't do that i think it was the thing in new york too like the big difference was when we came here and played places here you know especially more clubs rather than like the big venues mm. they went out of their minds mm. they went absolutely crazy nobody in new york nobody did anything they were cool it's too cool everybody's <laughs> got the dark glasses on nobody wants to be impressed by anything whatsoever <laughs> and, but we couldn't believe them. they're like crazy the barbarians like just out of their minds and they it's like they take it very very seriously mm. um and you just never and in la that was that was like too. la the thing in la is they used to drive in from the suburbs to orange county the most affluent <laughs> place you know in america and they would go in and they would they'd be more punk than the punks they would even go hyper beyond that so it's very very different the reaction
0: is a little bit later, but you ended up uh, touring with Iggy Pop, right? So what was that like?
1: Uh, when I was playing? Uh, uh, mm. Yeah, because uh, well, the first Blondie Tour of the States, we opened for Iggy. That was in 77, and David Bowie was playing in his band, Incognito. He wasn't announced. Uh, but then I later, in 1981, um, after I uh, uh, put my Stratocaster on the wall, as it were, <laughs> and had... Uh, just disbanded the no, cause we hadn't got a, a record deal. <clears throat> I, re- I released this, I released a solo single and, and a couple other things, but we didn't get a deal. Uh, this guitarist, Rob Dupre, I mentioned earlier, um, who was playing with Iggy. He said, um, do you want to come on tour? Um, and, um, their guitarist, they had Ivan Kral, who was someone who had played both with Blondie and Patti Smith. Uh, he left, he jumped ship just before, you know, they were supposed to go on tour. So. Um, I said, sure, you know, um, w- when, you know, I'm playing with Iggy, you, you know, most of the songs probably already, or, you know, they're easy, blah, blah, blah. I say fine, I wasn't doing anything. And when do we go? And he said, uh, tomorrow or something, <laughs> something like that. So I just packed a bag, got my guitar, and, you know, practice on, on the tour bus. And um, yeah, I mean, it was remarkable. That really was the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll tour uh, uh, for me. And um, for Iggy too, because he was promoting an album called Party. <laughs> that um, um, had come out and I think it was Arista Records it was on. And they had said, look, um, yeah, this this one has to do it. I think he did two other um, albums that didn't quite, you know, uh, do much in terms of sales, I guess, from their point of view. So if this one doesn't do it, you know, we're not going to renew your contract or something along those lines. So it was kind of like the Wild Bunch I always found. <laughs> it was kind of like the Last, last, last Chance Saloon. That was fantastic. And then we did another tour where Clem was on drums. Um, and Carlos Alomar, who was Bowie's guitarist, we did some fantastic shows. We did some like really tiny divey place where you know you basically got off the bus, you know, played the gig, got back on the bus. There wasn't a you know dressing or anything like that. But I guess one of the most um, stand out one of the shows that stand out was when we opened for the Rolling Stones ah. in, in um, the Silverdome uh, in Detroit, and it was the Stones, Santana, and um, Iggy. And this is 1981, and the pe- the 80,000 people in the Silverdome were n- not there to see Iggy Pop. Cool. Was- um, and what happened was during our performance, they threw everything they possibly could at us, uh, like out of out of the darkness, like big lighters yeah. and sneakers, and you know. And uh, um, uh, af- after the uh, the show, the promoter uh, went out and and uh, collected everything that had been thrown, and he, and, and he and Iggy went and uh said it they said oh there's 25 dollars and quarters here (laughs) and a size eight and a half you know um whatever (laughs) sneaker so yeah so some remarkable shows but that was it i i i i I pretty much retired.
0: Uh, of course, with Iggy Pop, I mean, he—he's—he's he's a survivor, isn't he? He's—he's—and um, um, he—he he always comes across as being very sort of good-natured, and sort of positive. It's got that incredible voice, of course, these days—absolutely um, wonderful. Um, uh, but Gary, sort of, because uh, we're sort of winding, winding towards the end here. I mean, in—in in terms of. That time when you crossed the river, you came to New York, Lower East Side, the Bowery, living with those guys, playing with those guys, and stuff like that. Part of history, in a way, isn't it? Part of countercultural history, part of your personal history. I mean, I'm glad I did it. What can I say? I mean, I'm
1: very, very lucky. Um, you know, as I said, I got to do what. Um, most everybody I knew when I was growing up wanted to do was go play in a rock band, you know, make records. Uh, never thought I'd be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but you know, that happened. Yeah, you um, I've got a couple gold records and uh but you know here i am and i'm (laughs) talking talking with you about it um no no it's great what can i say
0: are you still in contact with those guys no not really no
1: not really uh just that uh occasionally with with clem he keeps going i mean he's he's in remarkable shape and he's he's done quite a lot i mean he's got this uh, you know documentary about him so he's he's recognized as one of the the great rock drummers and and rightly so i mean um it, it there wouldn't have been the blondie actually for clem because he was the one who kept them going when mm-hmm. um they actually just seemed to be falling apart and nothing was happening the one time when i was back in town, again this is a long time ago now was when i was playing playing with them again even earlier than then i did this show with them a tribute to william burroughs this is right. this was an interesting thing when burroughs is still alive in lawrence kansas and this is one of the first things i did and Chris got back in touch with me and, and you know, said, I want you to come play. Because I just moved here. i just was living here, mm-hmm. actually, in London. And then I went back. and was living in New York again. But we went to do this thing. And it was Debbie, Chris, myself, and um, Chris's girlfriend at the time. I love playing bass. But it was uh, Patti Smith, Laurie Anderson, Philip Glass, John Giorno, Debbie Harry and company, um, uh, Ed Sanders, who uh, had the group The Fugs. Um, back in the old days, so this was this bill at this bur- and burrows uh, and I was suddenly like in hip central. You know, I had I, I, I'd been I hadn't been in that neck of the woods for quite some time, and I was just thrown into it. Um, so, yeah, that that was very interesting. Okay, so
0: what about if your phone rings later on this afternoon and uh, you, you pick it up and it, and it says, uh, Hey, Gary, it's Chris. I want you to rejoin Blondie. What are you going to say?
1: Well, I mean, when I see the 100,000, whatever, in my account, <laughs> I'll, I'll consider it. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'll do that again.
0: There's a time to be a rock star, right? Or a young, you know, it's a young person's game, right? But um, uh, But, you know, you've gone on, you've had this... Remarkable career as a writer of the esoteric and on, on, and on the counterculture and other things. It'd be interesting to know what they think of you in a way, because you know, back in the day, you guys are living in their flat. You're maybe, you know, you, I think you said that you came across Colin Wilson, you know, and it was a, maybe that uh, Chris had uh, a book about Colin Wilson or about Crowley and stuff. And you know, it uh, loops back to that and stuff. And it's it's interesting from their point of view is, is that, well, look what happened to Gary, you know, look what he did, you know, you went on and you forged this totally different career, didn't you?
1: I mean, when funny thing, um, I don't know if it's apropos of this, but uh, um, Debbie came out with this memoir uh, a couple years ago or so, I think it's called Face It or something like that, if I remember, and um, the, the person who was ghostwriting it, you know, whatever it is, in collaboration with, I can't remember, got in touch with me and said um, you know, would you mind you know, can you give us a paragraph or two or something like that, so I said a few things and then, as one does, when I saw that it was out um, i was in a waterstones and very wisely they don't have an index, you know, so you, you can't just flip through it and find the page you're on. So you either buy the thing or you just hang out there and you look for it. So I hung out and looked for it. But I I had to, I had to laugh because she started to talk about how you know I got back playing with them again. And what she wanted to say was that Chris talked with Gary about, you know, blah 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 taking part in the reunion, but, or not. but the copy editor completely missed this and it has Christ. Talked with Gary, and I, I, I had to take a photo of it, and I tweeted, and I said, "Now you understand the enormous pressures I was subjected to in order to, you know, agree to this, you know, reunion." So, and it's just, you know, what can you
0: say? Well, listener, you know, you can check out New York Rocker, of course, Gary's uh, memoir of that time for much more details and many more stories, and of course, any of his twenty other twenty-three books uh on the esoteric since we will, gary we've you've got to come back and we've got to talk more about all the countercultural stuff but just to finish off you've got a book coming out in 2022 um on pre-cognitive dreaming and you i think that started off did that start off at london month of the dead when we did that
1: yeah uh, well that, that well the impetus for writing the book was giving mm. that talk there yeah. but actually in strangely enough in that book in the beginning of it i talk about my time in blondie uh and it Experiences I've had with dreams and telepathy with my girlfriend at the time.
0: Uh, which, is, which, of course, is detailed in the song, isn't it? In, um,
1: led to that song. Yeah. And what also happened around that time is because of my, my burgeoning interest in the occult and mystical and all that sort of thing, I read a book called An Experiment with Time uh, by J.W. Dunn, who's written in the 20s, and the author, not an occultist, an aeronautics engineer, discovered just through recording his dreams that bits and pieces of the future turned up in them. So I just decided to do the same thing, and lo and behold... He was right wow. and that wow. i've been that was about i don't know 1980 or so i started recording them and i've been recording them ever since off and right. on and in this book i go through 40 years of dreams in which you know many many of them
0: have been precognitive okay I mean, maybe we should do an episode on dreams actually. sounds good yeah. but gary that was a wonderful walk on the wild side through the world of countercultural 1970s New York, and your stories. Thanks for that. My pleasure. I think we should finish with a song, but listen, if you want to check it more about Gary and his work, which is extensive, uh, GaryLackman.co.uk. If you want to check it more about us, bureauoflostculture.com. Lots more on the underground there, and there'll be much more to come. You can let us know what you think and leave a review if you like. Uh, But I thought it'd be great to listen to one of Gary's songs. So to finish with that, so Gary, tell us about it. What are we going to hear as we say goodbye?
1: Well, this is actually a bit of something that on the last things I recorded with Blondie when I was playing with him again at the end of uh, 1996. And it's a song called Amor Fati, which means love of fate.